Brick Moon Fiction presents The Lock of the Scion by Brandon M. Easton Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle Human beings are blank canvases that we project our fears and insecurities upon. The ruling class is well aware of how easily we are manipulated in the post-9-11 world and they capitalize upon our cowardice. We'd rather run into a dark, warm tunnel to seek refuge from imaginary goblins than stand resolute in the face of very real, but very weak, one-percenters endlessly profiting from fictitious wars on terror. Wars, mind you, that you can never win. It's like saying you're declaring war on selfishness or jealousy. It is impossible to defeat a concept on a battlefield. My friends, please remain enlightened and spread the word of tolerance and respect. Do not fear your neighbor, do not fear those different than you, and do not believe the official version of anything, especially from governmental authorities. We're all that stands between freedom and the slave masters behind the new world order, Prentice said. There was scattered applause from the sparse crowd, like the disjointed clapping of a kindergarten classroom. Prentice stood at a podium in the back room of Third Eye Books and Games, a meeting place for conspiracy theorists, libertarians, and Dungeons and Dragons players looking for arcane books about the occult. Tonight's lecture was about how the elites of the Illuminati are using the War on Terror as a pretext to initiate an even more intrusive surveillance grid that completely eliminates any semblance of privacy. If they wanted privacy, Third Eye Books was the perfect spot to hold meetings because their speaker's area was nothing more than a dusty storeroom packed with cheap plastic folding chairs and a rusty old fan that looked as if someone pulled it from a shipwreck in the 1950s. Prentice Piedar stepped off the podium and shook hands with the assemblage of curious college folk, middle-aged hippies whose lifetime dedication to cannabis robbed them of critical thinking, and a random assortment of shifty internet hackers searching for their next score. Prentice posed for cell phone selfies and scoffed internally at the results because he hated the way he looked. A bowling ball-shaped man of medium height, he'd once been described as a genetic hybrid of Carrot Top and Danny DeVito. A better description, Prentice resembled a fat version of Elmo from Sesame Street, if someone shaved off all his fur except for a red shock of hair that ran from the back of his neck to a thick, unruly hipster beard that held remnants of last night's spaghetti sauce. Prentice was far from a ladies' man. Since he didn't believe in prostitution, he spent most of his evenings downloading extreme fetish porn from underground websites. He was extremely careful to only watch porn with consenting adults. No kids. If Prentice was caught downloading kiddie porn, it would give his family the push they needed to completely erase him from their lineage. The main reason he didn't indulge in private escorts was because the Piedar clan had already suffered a few dead prostitute scandals in the distant past and had no desire to drudge up the dead especially in an election year. The Piedar clan was a 21st century version of the Kennedys, old-school Irish Catholic stock that could be traced back for hundreds of years with a fortune based on textile factories, commercial fishing, and medical supplies. There were 11 members of his core family, his parents, his mother's two brothers, the maternal and paternal grandparents, Prentice, his two brothers and only sister. However, you'd think there were only ten because very few family portraits included Prentice after his thirteenth birthday, when it was astonishingly clear Prentice didn't inherit the Piedar looks, charisma, or personality. Prentice often felt like he was born into the wrong family, or perhaps the wrong historical era. If he had been British royalty, his rotund body would have been celebrated, and he would have his choice of women to sire his progeny. But this wasn't the Victorian era, and he wasn't a square-jawed, chiseled rugby captain of the Notre Dame team like every other man in his family had been. Prentice was the product of the modern zeitgeist of sedentary isolation. 
Every attempt to mold Prentice into a suitable Piedar clansman had been met with failure, and with a political dynasty in the nascent stages, the rest of the family decided to send Prentice away to boarding school and college in Southern California, while the rest of the family prospered in a lavish mansion compound on the Virginia side of Washington, D.C. In the Los Angeles area, the Piedar name meant nothing because the influence of the East Coast political elite was as distant as Alpha Centauri for the rank-and-file everyman. In L.A., Prentice was just a fat ginger with sensitive skin in a region that saw little rainfall or cloudy days. The air was so dry and hot that Prentice considered suicide, until an African-American roommate explained the significance of body lotion. Despite everything, Prentice could take luxury in the idea of daily moisturizing. Prentice's only contact with his family was through their lawyer, or, most often, the Washington Post's website. There he could read about major Democratic fundraisers held at the Piedar estate, or how one of his brothers was preparing for a Senate run, or how his sister was being wooed by a well-connected member of the National Security Council. Prentice knew that before long, one of the Piedars would end up as President of the United States. So when the family lawyer called at 3.30 a.m. Pacific time, he had a feeling something horrible had occurred. Prentice, we need you at the Piedar Estate as soon as possible. There's a first-class ticket waiting for you at LAX. You have a 7 a.m. flight to Washington. Don't miss it, the lawyer said. Prentice sat up in his bed. His mind caught in that unpleasant limbo between sleep and consciousness when your brain is slowly rebooting and downloading the dreamscape into the back corners of your imagination. Even in this state of mind, Prentice knew something was absolutely wrong. During the flight, Prentice scanned all of the major American and international newspapers as well as the independent media websites for any information about his parents. The last article mentioning the Piedar family was dated two days prior, covering a fancy yacht party in the Chesapeake Bay for political journalists interested in the upcoming senatorial campaign. There was a sidebar about Maryland-style crab cakes and how the Chesapeake Bay was too polluted to eat from anymore. Before he boarded the plane, Prentice called every member he had to reach his family members and they all went to voicemail on the first ring. He wondered if this was an elaborate practical joke at his expense. They all knew of his proclivity for conspiracies, and he wouldn't be shocked if this was yet another petty torture he had to endure in place of normal familial interaction. Prentice arrived at BWI Airport, and within five minutes of his landing, it started to rain. Although there was a private car waiting for him, Prentice asked for a moment to stand in the light downpour savoring the experience of cool raindrops splattering across his forehead. "'Are you all right, sir?' the driver said. Prentice turned to the driver slowly, as if rising out of a deep hypnosis. "'Of course I'm all right. It never rains in Southern California. The idiots out there think it's nifty to have 350 days of dry, dirty air, but they've got no idea,' Prentice said as his head tilted back like a Pez dispenser." The stress of the long flight ran down his face as the raindrops washed away the dried dust of recirculated oxygen. Prentice stared at the Piedar estate through the rain-streaked tinted windows of the luxury sedan, making the mansion look like a vintage photo on an Instagram page, a photo manipulated by a pretentious filter effect. The closer he got to the main gate, the more he felt like he was being brought to an execution. Is this how the French aristocracy felt as they were being pulled to the guillotines? It was all so unfamiliar. The house, the driver, the nice car, the atmosphere of wealth and privilege. This was not Prentice's life, not in the least. He was more surprised to see an African-American butler answer the door. Despite the family's dedication to civil rights and equal protection under the law, the Piedars rarely had non-whites at their home. 
Hello, Mr. Piedar. I'm Valent Markinson. I'm an associate of Mr. Robards from the firm, Valent said. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Markinson, but don't call me Mr. Piedar. I don't feel like a part of this family, Prentice said. Fine, just call me Valent. I'm glad you didn't assume I was the butler, Valent said. Prentice bit his lip to stifle a sad smile. Prentice, Mr. Robard is upstairs in your father's old study, fifth door on the left, Valent said. Father's old study? Valent's choice of words had few positive implications. Hanscom Robard was the head of the prestigious Robard, Buckley, Asperg, Clintlock, Burr, and Associates law firm. The colloquial name for the firm was Date Rape Incorporated, because they made a hefty fortune protecting various trust fund heirs and Ivy League legacies from serious jail time because of rape allegations. The Robard firm was so ruthless that they would sue the rape survivor and her family for defamation, and they'd usually win. From an early age, Prentice remembered hating Robard for a million reasons. His greasy comb-over that fooled no one, his pungent odor, a mixture of rotten fish and stale cigar butts, the way his untailored suits hung lopsided on his body. He was too cheap to pay to have a new suit tailored to his size. His shifty black eyes that looked like they were stolen from a giant squirrel. Prentice recalled that Robard was the man that arranged for his involuntary exile to the West Coast. In fact, the last person Prentice saw before getting on a plane was Robard. Prentice entered his father's study. Not even the smell of well-manicured oak furniture or regularly polished marble fixtures could cover Robard's distinctive funk. Prentice, it's been a long time, Robard said. Eleven years, Prentice said. You look well. Thanks. You're wondering why you've been called to your family's estate after all this time and minimal contact. I could see it on your eyebrows. Your family never could hide anything from me, Robard said. Prentice sat down on a chair in front of the desk. The soft leather caressed his skin, and suddenly he was aware of how much he missed growing up in the midst of bottomless well. Prentice, your entire family is dead, Robard said. What? Two days ago, your parents, grandparents, uncles, brothers, your sister, they were on a flight to Rome to make a special visit to Vatican City. Somewhere over the North Atlantic, the plane reported an electrical problem, and approximately twelve minutes later the plane went off of radar. Within an hour, a search party was discreetly dispatched to cover the last known location of the plane. Five hours later, the search and rescue was deemed a recovery operation to collect whatever bodies they could find on the surface of the ocean, Robard said. Prentice looked down at his hands. His normal skin tone was a shade lighter than Colorado's snow, but he was so white he was almost transparent. The pit of his stomach churned hard, tossing acid and first-class airplane food around like washcloths in a spin cycle. The sense of dread he felt the night before was multiplied by a factor of 10,000. While he had a strained relationship with his family... They were still his family. Now they were gone. And he was the last of their name. I, I don't understand. Why were they all on the same plane at the same time? Most people don't do that, especially not wealthy, politically-oriented dynasties, Prentice said. Before you delve into the realm of conspiracy, please note that airplane accidents are generally rare. They are unique occurrences that don't warrant the same level of precaution as a train ride or jaunt across Manhattan during rush hour. Your family was on a business trip, no doubt, and tragedy struck, Robard said. 
Prentice felt that Robard was reading from a prearranged script. Everyone knows that an airplane crash is the easiest way to wipe out a political rival. But Prentice knew that Robard would know he'd reached that conclusion, so he kept his face as blank as possible under the circumstances. So what now? Prentice said. Robard smiled, revealing a crooked row of yellow teeth. The Pidar family fortune has already been earmarked for charities, fellowships, and other philanthropic avenues. You have an offshore trust fund in the Caymans containing approximately $250,000. You may access it at any time, Robard said. Prentice frowned. The Piedar financial empire must have totaled close to $70 billion, and it seemed bizarre that he would only be left a tiny percentage. That's it? Prentice said. No, actually, it isn't, Robard said. Robard reached underneath the desk and pulled out a long wooden box. It was old and had a distinctive smell of mildew and rubber, but it was sturdy with a smooth surface all around. When Robard dropped it onto the desk, a plume of dust spread across the table. This is yours. Within this box is a family heirloom that must be protected at all costs. You are not to show this to anyone. Not a single living soul. This is your legacy as a Piedar. Find the deepest, darkest, safest place you can imagine and then dig ten feet deeper. Keep this hidden away until you sire offspring. The last-born son of your line will be given the box upon your death. And so it goes, Robard said. What if I open it? What happens then? Prentice said. Robard stifled a laugh. It sounded like a phlegmy cough. <laughs> Give it a try, Robard said. Prentice's hands hovered over the box for a minute. There was a part of him that believed the box was booby-trapped, and when he touched it there would be an explosion or a directed electric shock, thereby wiping out the last of the Piedars. Still, his curiosity outweighed self-preservation. When he touched the box, it was surprisingly chilled, like stainless steel. Although there was no power outlet nearby, Prentice felt the box hum gently, as if a kitten was inside purring uncontrollably. There was a tiny spot for a keyhole that resembled the rectangular gap used for quarters in slot machines. Prentice ran his fingers across the front latch, but there wasn't an obvious method to opening the lock. You'll find that the wood is impervious to water damage or fire. It's been treated with a centuries-old protective solution that goes back to the pharaohs, Robard said. Then what's the point of me having it in the first place? My family is dead. I have a negligible inheritance. I've known in my life. What if I end up dead? Prentice said as he felt a swell of emotions rise into his throat, causing him to release a stream of consciousness that bordered on gibberish of self-pity. Keep yourself alive. You've no idea how many people want to get their hands on what's inside, Robard said. Will there be an investigation into the plane crash? Prentice said. We'd have to find the wreckage first. You know, black box and all. Until then, we're in the process of settling your family's affairs. If you need a moment to go through the mansion to collect keepsakes, I suggest you do it immediately before the other executors arrive. They plan on liquidating anything that isn't built into the foundation. And with that, Prentice was effectively cut off from the Piedar dynasty, except for a mystery box and a pittance to start his lonely existence. Three months later, 
Prentice had settled into a factory manager gig near the port of Los Angeles in San Pedro. It was monkey work. All he had to do was make sure none of his employees were milking the time clock and also inspect the incoming shipping containers for contraband in the form of drugs or human beings in the sex trafficking trade. The salary was solid, and he kept his inheritance locked away in a high-interest account for a rainy day. The box was always rattling around in the recesses of his consciousness. What was inside? Why did his family die? What was the real reason for their trip to Vatican City? Prentice had abandoned the conspiracy lecture circuit because his sanity would be tested daily with all the speculation regarding the Piedars, the Catholic Church, and their political aspirations. As time passed, Prentice began to shift into being a regular person. A workaday guy who punched the clock, drank beer, ate copious amounts of pizza, and downloaded internet porn in the late evening. He was satisfied with his existence, until she showed up at his office on an uncharacteristically chilly September afternoon for SoCal. Her name was Anna Lamia. Exotic couldn't do justice to her visage. She was about six feet tall, with jet black hair so dark that he imagined it was spun from the material of a black hole in space. Her eyes were either gold or green, depending on how she tilted her head in the light. She had a Mediterranean look, like she spent half her time on a European beach and the other half in a million-dollar salon. Her skin was a milky olive, like the color of freshly baked French bread. She wore a stylish black outfit, like the kind women in New York wear when autumn arrives. Prentice knew that Anna wasn't from the area. She dressed with style, not in the trademark mall trash ensemble of jeans and flip-flops most L.A. women assume is fashion. Her body dimensions were well hidden under the cotton and wool folds of her trench coat and pantsuit. What truly stood out was a thick silver necklace that held one of the most exquisitely designed crucifix pieces Prentice had ever seen. Even though he was a lapsed Catholic, Prentice spent more than enough time in fancy East Coast cathedrals and saw all kinds of opulent architecture built from gold, silver, and marble. Ona's crucifix had layers upon layers of tiny metallic roses crisscrossed with ancient Latin and Sumerian scripture. Upon closer inspection, one could see a scaled-down map of Vatican City above Jesus' crown of thorns. You admire the craftsmanship, Anna said. Prentice immediately loved the sound of her voice, a thick Middle Eastern accent that rolled off her tongue like melted butter. Do you have an appointment? Prentice said. No, I don't. I wasn't aware account holders had to schedule meetings with the management. You're an account holder? Women own businesses, Mr. Piedar. My company is Lux Grace Shipping, Inc., this factory station is usually the last inspection stop before my client's property is loaded onto trailer rigs and shipped across the southwestern U.S., Anna said. My apologies. Is there a problem with our protocol, Miss Lamia? Miss Anna Lamia, Anna said. Pleasure to meet you. Anna smiled and sat down in a chair in front of Prentice's desk. You never answered my question, Anna said. Question? Do you admire the craftsmanship? Prentice snapped out of whatever fantasy about Anna was dancing through his loins. Yes, I've never seen anything like it before, and I spent many years inside of Catholic churches, Prentice said. Yes, such a great misunderstood empire, the Catholics. We have brought so much dignity and justice to the world, and all we'll be remembered as is a horde of child rapists and Nazi sympathizers. Anna said as she twirled the crucifix between her fingers.
Are you from the Vatican, Miss Lamia? An associate, really. Please call me Anna. Anna, Prentice said. Prentice inhaled deeply and took a look through his office window overlooking the factory floor. The men were busy with their assignments. Then maybe you can tell me something about my family's business with Vatican City? Do you have any information about their plane crash? Prentice said. Is this the right place for that conversation? Anna said. Prentice tapped his fingers on the desktop for a few moments and then grabbed his keys from a drawer. I know a good spot, Prentice said. About thirty minutes later, Anna and Prentice were at a small park on the top of Signal Hill in Long Beach. From here one could see most of southern Los Angeles County. The sun was just about to dip behind the heavy clouds over the hills of the Palos Verdes Peninsula. The land was bathed in a golden-purple light, the kind of sunset you could only see on the Pacific coast. It's beautiful up here. If I didn't know better, I'd swear you'd have romantic intentions, Anna said. Uh, it's a chilly day. The wind gets pretty strong up here, and the average Angelino can't take temperatures lower than 75 degrees, so we'll have the park to ourselves for the rest of the evening. What's your deal, Anna? Prentice said. What do you believe heaven to be? Is it a celestial paradise or a myth to control the masses? Anna said. Heaven? I can't say I've given the concept much thought. I believe in what I can see and feel. I gave up on being manipulated by a fear of eternal hellfire years ago, Prentice said. Anna stared at the setting sun as it sank behind the hills. Prentice couldn't help but to get lost in her golden eyes. If Anna felt his stare, she made no effort to shame him. How much did Robard tell you about the box? Anna said. Prentice shivered as he thought deeply about how to answer that question. How much do you know? Prentice said. Anna stiffened considerably. I know that we don't have time to play games because, Anna said. Anna's eyes became fixed on a point far below them. At the intersection leading to the winding road to the top of the hill were several black vans, all windowless, all unmarked. What's wrong? Prentice said. How fast can you drive? Ona said. Why? The faster you drive, the chances that you'll live to see tomorrow will increase dramatically. As the vans crept closer to the hilltop, Prentice noticed that the driver and passenger side windows began to descend. Although Prentice couldn't see the driver or passengers, there was no mistaking the telltale silhouette of semi-automatic rifles. Ona tackled Prentice to the ground as the first round of bullets narrowly missed his head. Prentice felt the heat of the bullet as it sped past his cheek. Maybe this is a good time to believe in heaven, he thought, as Ona pulled him to his feet and they ran back to his SUV. Prentice pushed the accelerator to the floor, causing the SUV to lurch forward like a runaway roller coaster. Ona dug her fingers into his arm. Pain radiated in waves up to his shoulder, but the idea of Ona touching him made his heart beat faster. Prentice drove past the black vans as bullets perforated his SUV, shattering the passenger side windshield as well as Swiss cheesing the exterior of the truck. Ona screamed quickly as bullets hit her midsection. Ona! Don't worry about me. Keep driving forward, Ona said as she reached into the folds of her trench coat. Whatever you do, keep looking ahead. Do not look in the rearview mirror. Do not stop. Understand me, Ona said. Gotcha. Ona leaned out of the shattered passenger window, her raven black hair fluttering in the breeze like a vengeful apparition. Ona tossed something toward the fleet of black vans that were gaining on them. Prentice heard a piercing whistle, 
like the cry of an eagle magnified to shatter crystal. Then there was a flash of light so intense that it caused spots to swirl before his eyes. When his vision cleared, Prentice looked to Ona, who was bent over in the seat, her arms crossed over her torso. There was no blood anywhere. Ona? You okay? Prentice said. Yes, I'll be fine. Are they still behind us? Can I look? Absolutely. Prentice's eyes slid to the rearview mirror. There was nothing but early evening traffic and the distant sound of police cruisers approaching quickly. Take me to your place, Prentice, Ona said. Prentice gripped the steering wheel. He swallowed hard. What the hell is going on? Get to your place. I'll tell you everything, Ona said. Prentice pulled into the driveway of his condo. He turned off the lights and let the car glide to a stop on its own momentum. His head swiveled to the left and right, which satisfied his trepidation about a potential ambush. They won't follow us here. They weren't after you, Anna said. Who were they? Why were they trying to kill us? Or you? There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. I did go to high school, and that's the second time you've mentioned heaven, Prentice said. Inside, please, Anna said. Prentice watched Anna closely as she took off her trench coat. There were at least ten bullet holes that he could see. Who knew if there were others obscured by the folds of cloth? For the first time, he got a look at Anna's body. She was well-proportioned, but a little too skinny for his tastes. As a plus-sized dude, he preferred women with considerable curves and abundant flesh. Anna's face was gorgeous, but her body left him wanting much more. The longer Prentice stared at her body the more it began to look like the object of his fantasies. Before his eyes, Anna's hips seemed to swell. Her buttocks became fuller. Her breasts appeared to thicken and get heavier. The shock of being shot at must be giving me a delayed adrenaline surge, he thought. Anna's shirt was perforated, but there was no blood or noticeable wounds underneath her clothing. When she turned to him, her face lacked any sign of pain or fear. I spoke of heaven because you are closer to divinity than any human being in millennia. Anna said. Why the disconnect? You said human being as if you weren't one yourself, Prentice said. Where's the box? I'm not sure I should... Before Prentice could finish the sentence, Anna pressed her body against his. Prentice tried to resist her, but it had been so long since he'd known the pleasure of a woman's body, and the harder he pushed away, the more her body physically morphed under his fingertips to match his deepest desires. What... Do you want from me? Prentice said, struggling to free his mouth from her ravenous lips and tongue. Nothing. Just give in, Ona said. A million thoughts rushed through Prentice's mind. He wanted nothing more than to rip her clothes off and spend the rest of the week exploring Ona's peaks and valleys. But then he glanced at the mirror across the room and saw a sobering reflection. He was an overweight, balding, redhead with no money stuck in a pointless dead-end career, making out with one of the most beautiful women he'd ever seen in his life. Something was definitely wrong. Prentice pushed Ona to the floor, his own momentum causing him to stumble backward into his couch. Ona collapsed onto the carpet, her eyes sad and heavy with confusion. Am I not all you've ever desired? Ona said. Yes, and that's what bothers me. You are the amalgamation of Salma Hayek, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and Monica Bellucci, the object of my most intense sexual fantasies. 
There's no way he would ever want me unless there was an ulterior motive. I'm not rich anymore, so that's out of the question. You've mentioned the box and Robard without me telling you anything about my life, so either you're responsible for the death of my family or you're connected to the forces that killed them. Fess up, Prentice said. Ona stood slowly, her faux distress giving way to a cold expression that Prentice interpreted as respect. How much do you really know about your parents? About the history of the Piedar clan, Ona said. I never subscribed to Ancestry.com. How about you fill me in, Prentice said. You're not Irish Catholics. Your family is descended from the Piedar clan of Scotland, who were from the line of lost Templar knights of the Crusades. Scotland? Templar? What the hell are you talking about? Ona's body reverted to her original size and frame, well-proportioned but too skinny for Prentice's tastes. The Crusades were more than a political struggle between the Jews, Muslims, and Christians. It was a battle to protect the greatest treasure known to mankind, Ona said. Let me guess, Christ's kids, the Holy Grail, Prentice said. That's two-dimensional thinking. The bloodline of Yahweh was extinguished eons ago. This is a much bigger prize. Prentice considered all possibilities, but could not think of anything more important than the Son of God. Tell me then. Enough with the games, Ona, Prentice said. Ona ripped the crucifix necklace off and tossed it to Prentice. It was heavier than it looked. That's the key. Now open the box, Ona said. Prentice thought back to Robard's warning. You are not to show this to anyone, not a single living soul. Why do you have the key to my box? What are you? Prentice said. Ona sighed. She walked toward Prentice, each footstep sounding louder than the last. Prentice glanced at Ona's fingertips. They were crackling and stretching into nasty-looking claws. Ona's face bubbled into an elongated demon's face, her eyes burning a bright golden hue. Prentice pointed to a closet at the end of the hallway. The box is in the safe. The safe is in that closet, Prentice said. Ona sliced him across the stomach deep enough to expose a thin strand of intestines. Hold it in place and you'll be fine, fat boy, Ona said. Prentice's bloody hands fumbled with the combination wheel on the safe because he couldn't get a firm handle on the knob. Eventually, he managed to spin the right combination and open the door. Ona pulled the box out of the safe and smiled broadly, revealing a set of teeth that would put a great white shark to shame. Finally, Ona said. Prentice rolled on the floor in agony as he cupped his intestines in his hands. Ona picked up the crucifix and jabbed it into the open wound on Prentice's stomach until the cross was fully saturated with his blood. Then Ona slid the crucifix into the small slot on the front of the box. The box rattled slightly, and the lip swung open, revealing a large metal key with various languages cut into the surface. Ona picked up the key and waved it in the air. Nothing happened. Ona shook it. Nothing. She placed the key over an open flame on the stove in the kitchen. Still nothing. Ona hissed and spat in Prentice's direction. To her dismay, Prentice let loose a pained chuckle. What's so funny, you piece of filth? Ona said. I think I, I understand now. You said we were Scottish. It all makes sense. 
In Scottish Gaelic, Piedar is the word referring to St. Peter, as in one of Christ's apostles, Prentice said. Ona's eyes betrayed her lack of understanding. Prentice struggled to his feet and lumbered toward Ona. For the first time in centuries, Ona felt fear. It's time to take what's mine, Prentice said. Prentice fell into Ona, his hands weakly grasping for the key. No, no, Ona said as Prentice kicked her across the room with the last burst of strength he could muster. As Prentice fell to the ground, he jabbed the key into the open wound in his stomach. The moment the key entered his body, he felt an indescribable warmth surround him. He closed his eyes and saw billions of colors that he didn't know existed. He saw the faces of every member of his family going back to the time of Christ. He saw every television show, every movie, every book, every music video that ever existed in the span of a few seconds. Suddenly, he understood it all. When he opened his eyes, Prentice stood before a gate that was a brilliant display of light and magic, a vortex of living energy that pulsated with vibrancy and jubilation. Prentice stepped through the gate. On the other side was an image that no human mind could comprehend. Every single planet in the universe and every living being across space and time were imprinted as moving images on rivers of light that flowed into infinity, like watching trillions of movies simultaneously. Each being had a life story, and each life story had an infinite amount of possible events, and each event had its own set of possibilities that stretched through creation on a series of expanding branches that multiplied endlessly. This place was a physical representation of all there was, all there is, and all there could be for all centuries across space and time. He realized what Anna was saying about heaven. Heaven was misunderstood. It wasn't a place where a Christian God stood in judgment over humanity, holding them culpable to a very limited set of moral imperatives. No, heaven was actually the nexus of all realities. A place where the rivers of souls, our life energies, go after our current form was deleted. Prentice remembered a lesson from grade school. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only change form. Prentice chuckled. Grade school? That might as well have been ten trillion years ago. It didn't matter anymore. As Prentice relaxed, he felt a tug in the back of his consciousness, a stinging pain that was relentless. He heard voices of concern. He felt electric shocks in his chest. Prentice wondered aloud why he would still feel pain in a place like this. A disgusting, acrid taste filled his nose and taste buds. He wanted it to stop, but the sensation increased the more he resisted it. Prentice inhaled sharply and coughed hard. His cough was so intense that he became dizzy and shut his eyes to regain a sense of balance. When Prentice opened his eyes, he was staring into the face of an EMT who clearly hadn't used breath mints after a Greek salad lunch packed with onions. The EMT pulled the defibrillator pads from Prentice's chest and sighed with relief. We got him back the EMT said. Prentice turned his head to see police officers, firefighters, EMTs, and the building property manager standing around his apartment. Buddy, you gave us one hell of a scare. Some neighbors heard a racket last night and thought you were being attacked. 
They called the police, but we couldn't get in the door until the morning. You had one hell of a lock on that door, the EMT said. Prentice smiled weakly and tried to get up, but there were heavy bandages across his stomach, with a pool of blood welling in a small patch. The bandages were so tight that they restricted his movement. Easy there. It looks like you got a nasty cut. Whoever did that to you wasn't trying to kill you quick. You would have bled out for days in the most painful way possible, the EMT said. All Prentice could think about was the key. And Ona. He was in no condition to do anything about it now, so he resigned himself to getting rest and worrying about his true inheritance another day. As they wheeled Prentice out on a stretcher, one of the EMTs bumped against Prentice's entertainment center. A stack of DVDs and old VHS tapes poured onto the floor, making a horrible din of plastic and cardboard. The EMT picked up a VHS tape and giggled softly about not using a video cassette since 1998. Prentice looked at the title of the movie and smiled inwardly. It was Heaven Can Wait. Brandon M. Easton is a professional writer based in Los Angeles, California. A native of Baltimore, Maryland, Brandon was a U.S. history and economics teacher in New York City for six years before moving to the West Coast in 2008. Brandon has written for the 2011 Thundercats reboot from WB Animation and Transformers Rescue Bots from Hasbro. Easton won the 2012 Glyph Award for his Shadow Law series and multiple 2014 Glyph Awards for the Watson and Holmes comic series and a 2014 Eisner Award nomination. The Watson and Holmes story was notable for covering issues of human sex trafficking and transgender abuse in New York City. He is also the producer, director, and writer of Brave New Souls, a documentary that explored the aspirations, inspirations, and obstacles faced by African-American speculative fiction creators in the 21st century. In 2015, Brandon was selected as one of the eight winners of the 2015 Disney ABC writing program, which led to his position as a staff writer for season two of Marvel's Agent Carter. In 2016, Brandon was nominated for the second annual Dwayne McDuffie Award for Diversity in Comics for his acclaimed graphic novel Andre the Giant Closer to Heaven, which was optioned for a big screen biopic. He also volunteers at JPL NASA as a solar system ambassador to increase astronomy education in underserved communities. Brandon was the writer for the Mask reboot comic book series that was released in November of 2016, and Easton was announced as the writer for the new Vampire Hunter D comic book series. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts, as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.